Thank you. Shall I show you my feet? Um, I've got sort of double jointed. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do the strange language because then you won't hear anything of any sense tonight. <laughs> but that's so annoying. Nadine stole my story. I was actually going to expose her crush on Mel Gibson. <laughs> when I met her, I was going to say the same thing. It's amazing. So we obviously remember that. I had a poster in my room of him. That <laughs> it's very sad. Yeah, so <laughs> anyway, it's really nice to see you all. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a privilege and honor to come here tonight. I mean, how often do you get to be with a group of women in a room and just talk about God and trusting God and spur one another on and encourage each other in our faith? And thank you so much for the ladies who did the worship. That was beautiful. I love it. I love the African mamas. And it's beautiful. Thank you so much. And we just had our event at Jubilee a couple of weeks ago in Cape Town. And I, let me tell you, it's hard work, um, orchestrating everyone to do their part, and it takes a lot of work behind the scenes. So just, just want to honor Nadine as leader of this team as well. We can just applaud her. <laughs> so well done, Nadine. It takes so much effort, and it was so lovely to meet some of her team last night and just to have time with them over pizza that Gareth, the amazing chef, did. And my husband's so embarrassed. He says he's a special needs husband. <laughs> he said, thank goodness you've got em empathy, Anna, because I'm a special needs husband after me coming across Gareth, who does this master chefing. <laughs> so we had this lovely pizza and just a lovely time connecting and praying for tonight. And it was wonderful to hear ladies' hearts and just their prayers for you tonight were beautiful. And it's just amazing to see the building like this. I love just celebrating with you this new venue you've had for over a year now, I think. But it's just an honor to be here from Cape Town. So thank you for having me. And um, yeah, it's going to be great to just be in God's word together. And I think I saw Knox. Hello, Knox from Cape Town. <laughs> so nice to see you as well. Okay, so yeah, we're going to, I'm going to start by talking about um, one of my, well, um, my husband's, one of his favorite theologians is John Piper, an American theologian and, and pastor. You may have heard of him. Um, but he powerfully points out that what we most need in life is actually a view of God's greatness, his majesty, and his grandeur. And that would actually be the cure for many of our troubled situations. And I wonder how many of us would actually come to that with all the, the things that we go through, that we think actually what is most needed is a vision of God's greatness. That the God, a, a view of God's majesty is the unknown cure. I don't think we often just suddenly think, actually, what I want to s need to see now is God's greatness. He says, since God is infinitely glorious, the linchpin of all life is that he be seen as infinitely glorious. Our lives will be out of sync with reality unless what we see conforms to what is real. I put to you tonight, and I'm sure you would agree, that we are starving for just a, a sense of the greatness of God in our lives. I think we're so distracted by so many things, the internet and so, many, so much noise around us, so much busyness, so many distractions, so many things we're dealing with and juggling. I think we're actually starved for just seeing God and his glory and his greatness. And um, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within you, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, God, you'll be at rest. And that was a quote by Corrie ten Boom who is one of my heroines. I was reading her, a book by her recently, The Hiding Place. Um, I don't know if any of you have read it. It's such an amazing story about a woman who, man, did she suffer, and she was in a concentration camp um, with her sister in Germany in the Second World War, and her sister died there. 
But if you're going to hear of somebody who's really suffering and they come out, you, you really want to sit up and listen to someone who's really been through it and that they've actually been victorious. And that's a quote by her, and she just learned how to rely and trust in her God. So it's just a wonderful theme. I love this theme. And when Nadine spoke to me, it was such a joy just to pick up her passion, as she just picked up um, earlier on now, just for this subject. She said, if women see this, it just solves so much. I mean, she was just so passionate about it. She even spoke about it when I was here over summer, just her heart for women catching how to trust God. So that was really wonderful just to see that behind the motivation for this conference as well. She really wants you women to catch that and to be blessed with that in your lives. Yeah, so if we're going to trust God, if that's the theme, we really need to see him clearly and know him intimately, don't we? We've got to think, well, who is this God that we're trusting? And in Matthew 7, Jesus talks about, gives that parable about um, building the castle on the sand or on the rock. And if you remember that story, and it's really with, um, it's just such a clever way of just saying a wise builder really needs to check about the foundations before they start their building project. Is this thing actually going to hold my weight? Is it going to sink when the storms of life come? Is it going to stand or is it going to be knocked down and not be able to withstand the storms that are coming? Because they are coming in life. So foundations matter big time, don't they? And this is a metaphor for life to, to make us think, what am I building on? What are my values actually eternal? Are they going to stand the test of time? You know, um, is this actually real, this Christian thing, or is it a mirage? Is it just a lot of blessed thoughts? Is it a lovely platitude? And, or is there something really real to it that will help me when I go through that stuff? Uh, we need something that's going to hold us because those storms will come. And as we go through life in this sin-sick world, um, sin-ridden world, and this broken, fallen world, there will be times just when those clouds just come of disappointment in our life, and things that will happen, and the clouds come, and they kind of, they obscure the, the greatness of God. We, we know about God's greatness. We're introduced to him. We, we fall in love with Jesus, but, and we, we think, okay, I'm going to go this way, and, and then the clouds come, and disappointments come, and things tend to obscure our view, and we can forget that God is great. God is majestic. He's powerful. We start to interpret things through the things we go through, and we get a distorted view of what he's like. We become influenced by those trials that we go through, and we see it negative. We start to interpret events in that way, and we can, you, we can, our view of God can get distorted, and we can lose our confidence in this great God and start to take personally when these hard things happen. We think, is God on our side? And those clouds come, and they blur our vision. And we start to see things, just we interpret things around us rather than coming to the word. So pausing and reflecting on the key foundations. The PowerPoint hasn't one worked. It doesn't matter. Oh, don't worry. It's fine. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Um, so pausing to reflect on what the key foundations we are building on is critical. So what is carrying the freight, the weight of the freight of your life? What is carrying the weight of the freight of this church? What's undergirding this church and you personally? The answer is only God, and he will be our focus tonight. And tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 147 together. As we work through this psalm, let's put aside those assumptions that may have, those clouds that may have come and influenced us. Let's just park it and put it to the side, things that we may be struggling with and grappling with our lives that affected our relationship with God. And the enemy loves to come in and shout those things and make those clouds so big that we fail to see his goodness, that, which, which is what's going to pull us through. 
And let's just look at his word and allow the sunshine of his glory and his love to flow through and to bask in his greatness, to bask in his loving goodness. And his word is the safest place to find out what he's like. So if some of those clouds have obscured your view, let's trust God to blow them away and let's, let's quieten our hearts and just humbly, come humbly to his word, which doesn't lie. So let's go to Psalm 147. And what was also really encouraging was that when um, Nadine and I were in touch, and I, she said about this trusting God theme, and I thought about it for about a day, and I said, okay, what about Psalm 147? I could do something about trusting God. And, and she said, that's amazing. I had my devotional in that psalm today. So that was really encouraging because we can actually gain confidence that God wants us to look at this psalm together. So I'm going to read that, and I'm at the stage now where I need glasses suddenly. <laughs> this is new for some. You haven't seen me with glasses, Nadine? Okay. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord f delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down the, his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up the breezes and the waters flow. He's revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. What an amazing psalm, hey? And I just love the word of God because it is so life-giving. It's just full of life and it imparts life to us. So we're going to look at this psalm under two headings. What is God like and what does God like? So first of all, let's just glut on God. It's going to be fun. Just, let's just look at God for a while. And without even thinking about ourselves, let's just look at God. What is he like? Let's go through this psalm and look at the verses. What's it saying about what's he like? Let's focus on him and, and worship him as we're even sitting and listening to the word of God. It's just amazing that this psalm helps lift the veil and shows us the multifaceted greatness of God on display. It reminds us of at least eight groups of 16 attributes of God to gaze upon him with. And it's just amazing just to be able to come down and be with you tonight and think what a brilliant privilege to just spend time like boasting and bragging about God and looking at him and actually taking this time to say, what an awesome God. Do we, do we take enough time to do that? So the first verse, um, the second verse, God builds and gathers. So the Lord builds up Jerusalem when 
Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that had become a devastation. The people of God had been taken captive. They'd been taken off to Babylon where they were there for years in captivity, actually because of their obstinacy and um, their rebellion. God actually allowed them to be taken captive for some time. But then God kindly brought them back, exiles from a remote Babylon, and enabled them to rebuild their walls and repopulate Jerusalem. So God was busy. We see here that God is a builder and a gatherer, and he was busy turning rubble into the beautiful city again. He was turning enslaved refugees into citizens and restoring dignity to his people. And we gain hope from that straight away. Is your life in ruins? God is a builder. What's God like? He's a God who builds. Is your life a shadow of what it used to be or what it's meant to be? A shadow of how it used to be? God is the gatherer and God is a restorer. I just want to encourage you. God is a restorer. He is a builder. God's the master actually of gathering wayward people and restoring them to become the people they're always meant to be. Is your family scattered? Um, are people that you love in a difficult place at the moment? Uh, is there rubble in your life? Is there, are there places where the walls are broken down in your life and there's some devastation in areas? Just to encourage you, God loves to rebuild. God loves to restore. God loves to p use people in your life to help to build, rebuild you, and as a people to rebuild us. Verse 3 says, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. So God heals and repairs. Life has a way of blindsiding it, doesn't us, doesn't it? You can decide, I'm going to um, behave myself, I'm going to toe the line, I'm going to put God first, I'm, I'm sure that will mean a trouble-free life, God will make sure everything goes right, I'm going to fear God and do everything that he tells me to do, and you expect that actually that will just mean fruitfulness alone. But sadly, we do ha live in this fallen world, and life does have a way of just disappointing us at times and blindsiding us, and perhaps you've... Well, all of you would have experienced that in some degree, whether it's an unfaithful spouse or you, a loss of a job, um, a death of someone close to you, your family or a friend, um, loss of finances. Um, we all go through serious problems, and it can be really devastating, and the effect is the same on all of us. We end up getting a broken heart, and that is a reality in life, and we can't hide from it. If you are sore or sad or bruised tonight or brokenhearted, cut or crushed, God wants to help. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. God is able to help. He is a healer and he is a restorer. And one of the great lies that Satan loves to throw at us in our lowest moments is that we need to scurry away and get our act together and get it all right and sort ourselves out before we even approach God or, or the people of God. We hide away from Christian brothers and sisters perhaps because we're ashamed because we're struggling and we don't come to God. We just feel like we have to pull up our socks and sort things out and before we can engage with God. But it's so opposite to what God's like. He's not like that. And we often get this image of this harsh God who we must do everything correctly before we come to him and obey all the rules. But we don't have to do that. And we have an amazing Savior. Jesus invites us in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all who you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
So Jesus isn't put off by our weaknesses. He's eager to help us. And what we find in Psalm 147 is that God doesn't simply want to empathize. He wants to heal your broken heart and he wants to restore your wound. And one of the ways that many of us cope in this harsh world is by hiding our pain and burying it. And to ignore or bury and hide your pain isn't to deal with it. And this ends up with us withdrawing or perhaps exploding on occasions because we're not, there's unprocessed stuff there and we just don't know what to do with it. So we just scurry around and try and sort it out. But it's amazing that we can actually come to God. And let's be reminded of who we're coming to. You don't have to, we're never going to be perfect. We've got to come as we are. And Jesus said, I mean, in Hebrews, it says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's such a comfort that we come to a high priest who's got so much empathy and so much understanding. And he says we can approach a throne of grace tonight with, and just expect his help and comfort. So the most, by far, the most preferable outcome is to bring your pain to God and just pour out your heart to God and be honest with him. Pour out your anger, pour out your hurt, your resentment. Come to him, ask for his help, and he will help you. And I love how verse 3, wonderfully, of Psalm 147 says he does more than empathize, even though he's an empathetic high priest. He does more than that. It says he heals the brokenhearted. And it struck me afresh reading this. I think often we just hear in life, you know, oh, time heals. Because people try and say something that's going to help you because people feel desperate and they don't have anything else and they just say, well, time heals. And yeah, time does have a way of numbing things and helping to some extent. In a way, it gives us time to come to God. Um, but God's actually offering more than that. And I just found this so encouraging. To, it's actually a truth. It says he actually heals the brokenhearted. So I, this is amazing, actually. And, it, and the context of this, again, Psalm 147, the people of God had been wayward. They'd been in rebellion. So that just shows his grace that he actually, their hearts were broken because they'd been in rebellion. And sometimes we can break our own hearts by stuffing up, by actually going off and doing our own thing. And things get broken because of our own pro um, problems. But God is so kind that even when we make foolish mistakes, he still is gracious. And that shows the amazing grace that it's not because you've been good. You know, even when we're really rebellious, he comes and he heals our hearts that have been broken because of our own actions. Verse 4 says, God designs and identifies. He's a, sorry, God designs and identifies. He's a masterful creator. It says in verse 4, he determines the numbers of stars and calls them by name. And here we see how large and char in charge God is. He creates the stars and determines each of them by name. He knows each of them by name. He knows every hair on your head, every sand grain on the seashore. He, he knows everything. And we see this point being made in Isaiah, but chapter 40, verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. It's truly remarkable. And here's a nerd fact for you. According to NASA, there are about 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone. And according to Lindsay Brook, 
of the Royal Astronomical Society and international team of astronomers have found that the universe contains at least two trillion galaxies. That's 12 zeros or a million million. So an approximate number of stars would be 200 billion times trillion. <laughs> and we don't, we just think stars. But if you actually look into the detail, it's like, what? <laughs> it just goes on and on. And I don't know if you've ever seen those programs where it shows you the galaxies and this, I mean, we, it's a dot. The Earth is a dot, and he knows everything by name. And the more we explore, the more we see God is amazing. He's absolutely amazing. I don't know if you've seen any of you have seen the episodes of The Blue Planet, David Attenborough, but it's amazing when you look into creation and the detail of the nature and just the thoughtfulness and the complexity of it is just amazing. We also see from verse 5 that God is both powerful and knowledgeable. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So God is both mighty in power and infinite in understanding. He's the brains and the brawn, ladies. And so often we just think, you know, ladies can go for guys with just the, who are the brainy ones or the jocks or whatever. God is both. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's majestic. But he's also infinite in understanding. He's got the whole deal. <laughs> Does that not make sense? No, but he's powerful and infinite and understanding. And sometimes when you hit an, a significant obstacle in life, there are two lies that are easy to swallow. Your problem's too big for God. You're up, you're down the river without a paddle. It's just too difficult for him to, it's too big a problem for him to break through. Or your problem's too complex. It's too layered, it's too nuanced. And how will God understand my train of thought? It's too complicated. But God can even understand us complicated women. He's got infinite, infinite understanding. He's got power and understanding. Great is the Lord in power. His understanding has no limit. God nurtures and sustains his world, verses 7 and 8. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. And the theme of these verses is the immense range of God's operations, equally wonderful in their vastness and attention to detail. This is divine care on a scale big enough to evoke wonder and worship. God covers the earth with clouds. The clouds give forth rain to feed the grass. Then the cattle come and eat that, and it feeds the, the creatures and the baby ravens. It's just amazing, the thoughtfulness. And we can take for granted God's hidden hand behind everything, sustaining our universe. He's caring for, providing, and sustaining the created order in remarkable ways. He also empowers and protects, verse 13. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He protects us externally, and, and he is able to give us peace internally. He cares for us physically and spiritually. Verse 14 shows that he's a God of peace and provision. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. Are you enjoying a season characterized by peace at the moment in your family or in your business or in your life in general? If so, you, we need to know and acknowledge that God is at work and that's why. He grants peace in your borders. We need to recognize that's a gift of God. And sometimes it takes a season of unsettling to help us realize that peace isn't from our own making. It's a gift from God. And unsettledness, division, disunity, and all those difficult things always have the human fingerprints on them. 
This is always our doing, imperfect people left to their own devices. And when God's peace comes, it wasn't because we achieved it. God, in his kindness, grants peace. He doesn't just provide wheat. He provides the finest of wheat. I loved hearing Cindy's testimony last night and then seeing that now. And um, it just reminds me of my own upbringing and my parents uh, in the ministry. And my dad, before he got married, he felt God also told him to put down his job. And it was a big step to do that and just to rely on God to break through financially. Often it was at the 12th hour. I don't know if you found that, Cindy. It's often the last moment that it comes. You think, is it going to happen? And then God would do that. And I'm so grateful because that then was an environment that I grew up with because he'd learned to test God in that. And if we do that in our lives, the fruitfulness then multiplies to others because they're able to observe. I'm sure others have been blessed by Cindy. We have tonight hearing that testimony. And if we do that, there's ripple effects to, to their life of faith. And God comes through. And it gave me such security growing up. I didn't have a fear of whether there'd be enough because God would just come through. I just saw God does this. And I was just aware... Um, one day grow, um, in my life in Cape Town with my three kids. It is more financially challenging to, in, to in England in terms of us having to pay for our schooling here. In England, they, my parents didn't have to do that. And my husband was saying, Anna, we really need to tighten the belt. And I'm like, can't tighten anymore, gosh. <laughs> and it was just tough. It's tough, isn't it? Economically, it's hard. And I just got tired of saying to my kids often in the shops, no, we can't. And I just hated doing that, just passing on this kind of, no, we, we haven't got the money for that, sorry. And I just thought, isn't there a way of saying this? And I just didn't want them to get this negative thing about God, if you're working for God, he can't provide. And actually, whether we're working for God or not, we're all believers and God can provide, you know. Um, but I just was concerned about that and I, I didn't enjoy that. And I thought, I'm actually failing at this. It's not great. I'm constantly saying, no, you can't have. And I thought, stuff it. God can do this for you. you know? <laughs> and um, then one day when I went into my daughter's room, she said, Mum, I had a dream last night. And I'm thinking, yeah, we've got to get ready for school. And um, she starts telling me about this dream. And she said, no, there was that painting. Remember that lady that did that painting for you? And this was a friend who did this beautiful prophetic painting for me. So it got my attention. I thought, well, what's this then? So I sat down. That lady that did that painting for you, and that was in the, in the dream. And it was in that hall where I do ballet. And then there was another paint, um, picture next to it. And she said there was a painting of, it was like a massive tree, but it was like one of those cupcake stands. It wasn't really a tree. It wasn't real. But it was a cupcake stand, and it was like metal. And um, she said, there were loads of apples on it. And um, instead of fruit, they actually love apples, my kids. So it could have been fruitfulness, but it was just apples. They love apples. And it was this metal cupcake stand, huge. And she just said, it looks so good. And then there was this maze in the background and a tractor and this activity. And she said, no, it looks so good. I had to jump in to the picture. So you know how dreams are. You just do these crazy things. And I thought, oh, that sounds fun. So she jumped in. She said, I just started eating the apples. I was having a great time. And then she said, Ben came in looking for me in the ballet room. And he thought, where's Beth? And he said, he saw a crowd of people around the paintings. And he saw me munching away. He thought, lucky her. So he jumped in. And then he started eating the apples. And then she said, I think Josh and you are thinking, where are they? So Josh came in, and he was like, what are they doing? And, he said, and then he saw us eating. He was so embarrassed. And then he jumped in and said, what are you doing? Everyone can see you. <laughs> and then he went around the back of the tree and started eating the apples too. And so they're having a blast. And then and she said, that was the dream. And I said, wow, I think that was a real God dream. And she said, yeah, I think it means God's a God of miracles. And it was so cool because God actually gave me a desire of my heart, and it was he was showing me, don't worry, I, I'm the one who reveals myself. You don't have to reveal me to them. 
I mean, obviously, I can tell them and teach them and share and live before them, but at the end of the day, it's God's job to reveal himself. And he revealed himself to her in that dream, in that perfect thing that was on my heart that I was, and the fact that she told me and I was having that struggle was such a kindness of God. And what was amazing was um, we were then to go on a sabbatical, Steve and I, um, we went to the States, and we really saw that happen, and it was quite remarkable how God just did all these things. And um, Steve booked the tickets um, for the way home and for the way there, obviously. And as they came through, he saw, hang on, they've made a mistake. There were three for business class. And so he phoned them and said, no, I didn't put that. And they said, oh, it's too late now. It's done. We can't change it. We didn't pay for it at all. So on the way home from the States, they flew back. We knew it was for the kids because it was three. And I felt like God was just saying, don't worry, Anna. You know, they don't miss out because so often I'd had to say no to them. And God just lavished. And they came home. They had a blast. They kept coming back to us in economy saying, can I get something for you? <laughs> and I was like, just go and enjoy it. I was so happy for them. I said, don't worry about me. I'm having, it's great. But they kept like feeling sorry for us. Oh. <laughs> but they had a blast. And then a friend paid for them to go to us all to go to Disney. Um, and there were just things that happened that was, we just can't do. And I just want to break that thing off of you that it's down to this paycheck and that's my life. You've got an amazing God. You've got an amazing Father. And he can do awesome things. He can break in. And if you've got a desire for something, pray, cry out to me. Actually, it says in the word of God, ask and you will receive. You're allowed to ask. He invites you to ask. And he's good and he's kind and he's loving. And I just saw the lavishness of God and all our accommodation was all was all covered. There was one place we, where we had to pay, and we had this amazing time that we never could have done on a pastor's salary. I mean, really, it was a total miracle. So just to encourage you that God provides the finest of wheat, and my husband had the same desire to communicate this to the kids, and all our kids are very loud, and one in particular, and so he used to go around to this child and say, we serve a God of abundance! <laughs> and Josh would shout it back, we serve a God! And he thought it was hilarious, and so he was totally on his level but he wanted to do the same thing, like break that thing uh, in our kids. Um, we see in verses 15 to 20, in, in fact, uh, as commentator, that, that God commands and communicates. As commentator Derek Kidner points out, the unifying theme of the final verses is the word of God, 15, 18, and 19, and it's two great functions, to command and to communicate. Verses 15 to 18 show God's effortless control they remind us of the single will and intelligence behind the diversity we see. The cold is his cold. The wind which thaws is also his. But as Kidna points out, God doesn't just command, he communicates, addressing us, not programming us. God shows us that he seeks a relationship, not simply a, a sequence of actions carried out. God does not wish to have my obedience as something which is valuable in itself. He wants me. Wow, how amazing. And we see it the, in those last verses that God commands this, just like the disciples with Jesus. Um, when he commanded the wind and the waves, that showed them another aspect of him. Wow, they actually got to know him personally, but then they saw oh, he's got power over these elements. And it's amazing to see, no, he's able to do that. He just commands. But then it says in the last word, he, um, verse, he reveals his word to Jacob. And it's amazing. He actually wants to talk to us and for us to know him. So we've looked at what God's like, and there's a, some pretty amazing things there. I think you have to agree, some pretty amazing attributes about God to really encourage us. Now we're going to look at what does he like. So verses 10 and 11 say, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. 
The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So the pleasure here that's being described isn't the pleasure important thing to find out. Well, what does this God like then? How can I please him? And God communicates what he greatly enjoys, first by way of saying, of a contrast, by saying what he doesn't enjoy. And he tells us this to really get to the heart of the matter by the contrast, the definition of that. And at first, when we read that, that's a bit confusing. It's like, why doesn't God delight in the strength of a horse? What's wrong with a ripped warrior? You know, <laughs> why doesn't he like that? The point here is not that the strong horses and strong legs are bad. God made them. No, the point is not that this glorious animal is bad. The point is that in the day of battle, when this was written, people would put their hope in horses or warriors instead of putting their hope in God. They put their trust in that. They think, have we got enough soldiers? Have we got enough weaponry? But Proverbs 21, 31 says, The Lord is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Therefore, Psalm 20, verse 7 says, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we boast in the name of our God. And as theologian John Piper says, God is not displeased with horses' strength and human legs. He's displeased with those who hope in their horses and their legs. He's displeased with people who put their hope in missiles or in makeup, in tanks and tans, in bombs or bodybuilding. God takes no pleasure in corporate efficiency or balanced budgets or eloquence or artistic excellence or legal processes when these things are the treasure in which we hope or the achievement in which we boast. And as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. So what does God delight in then? What does he find pleasure in? And verse 11 tells us, the Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. And the fear here isn't horror, but it's rather a reverent awe. Piper, sorry, again. Happy trembling and peaceful wonder and fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it serious. It takes that casualness away. The fireside fellowship, it's all the sweeter when the storm is howling outside the cottage. And I think it's really important that we're aware that God is the God of the storm, that there is that fearful respect, like he's powerful. And yet it's more precious that he then invites us to intimacy with him, to be in that cottage by the fire. There's a picture of intimacy. We can actually know him intimately. And yet there is a fearful reverence for him. And numerous Bible characters experience this, don't we? Think of Moses at the burning bush. Just that must have been quite a, an experience. Isaiah, who was undone and flawed. Um, John on the island of Patmos was just left undone when he encountered God and saw him in his glory. And there's many examples, actually, when people in the Bible encounter God and it's just overwhelming and they're left undone, but they are also exhilarated as well. It also reminds me, this aspect of God reminds me of, I don't know if you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love this quote about Aslan, who is supposed to be Jesus. And Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I love that. I think it depicts it so well that he's good, but he's also a roaring lion. He also has power. So he takes delight in those who are in reverent awe of him, who don't take him casually, who don't, aren't just flippant about him. He takes pleasure in those who hope in his unfailing love. 
I just want to ask you tonight, where is your hope this evening? What are you hoping and trusting in? Your career, your spouse, your kids, marriage, your cause, your dress size, your degree, qualifications, medals, fitness, your paycheck, your house. Not that any of those things are bad, but what are you placing your hope in? Is that where you are putting your trust and your identity? And I suggest to you that much of our unhappiness in life is because we're placing, making these things our ultimate hope. And they're fake hopes. They can't deliver as advertised. They can be gifts and we can enjoy them, but it's not what ultimately satisfies. And only God can carry the weight of the freight of your life. And so often our hopes are dashed and our hearts are broken. We make something else than God our ultimate when we give him something else, God's status in our lives. And as I was preparing this, what came to mind as well was the story of David and Goliath and how Samuel the prophet went to anoint one of the sons of um, Jesse as king. And um, Jesse could, didn't even think about David. He was so insignificant to him. Um, and all the sons were, they said, surely there's another one. He said, oh, yeah, um, David, the shepherd boy. Meanwhile, David had been learning intimacy with God and le learning how to lean on God on the hillside as he was looking after the sheep. And he protected them from the wolves and the bears and the lions and actually killed them with God's help and sparing the, the sheep. And I just was thinking about how David went to Saul and said when they were looking for someone to defeat Goliath and David volunteered, had been trained by God to lean on God. And he was like, how dare this giant come in? And he says, I'll do it. And what happens? Saul instantly thinks, well, here's the armor. You better take this. This is what we put our trust in. You know, it's, it's impressive. You need the weaponry. You need this. And I think in life we do that. Okay, to do it, I need this. I need this thing. And I, we hide in Saul's armor. And, it, and so heavy, the expectations are so heavy, we can't even move. And in the end, David had to throw it off and trust in something simple and just take the sling and say, God is with me. He put his trust in God, and that's how he defeated Goliath. And false hope is anything other than God's unfailing love. It's the big when in your life. When this happens in my life, I'll be lastingly happy. That's your ultimate hope. Is there anything other than God's unfailing love that you're building in your life? It's a faulty foundation. God is incredibly kind to us, not simply hope in my love, which is right, but to trust in my unfailing love. If we're making anything other than God's unfailing love, our ultimate hope, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and heartbreak and deep regret. Please don't. Please hope in God's unfailing love. And lastly, hope in Jesus, the one who has demonstrated perfect, unfailing love by entering our world of pain and then bearing it personally for us. And I just think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and the struggle he had after living a perfect life for us. And as he struggled with the will of God, the will that God had for him, the Father, to take this cup of, of wrath and to give himself for us, to sacrifice his life for us so that we can be free. And just to see the wrestle and how he fell to the ground twice and he sweat drops of blood. He went through so much for us. He gave himself despite it. He pushed through. And that is an amazing picture of unfailing love. When it got really tough, the toughest point, Jesus didn't give up. He kept going. He decided, no, I'm doing it. It was so hard for him. It wasn't, oh, this is just easy. He's God, so it's easy. No, he sweat drops of blood. He was so anxious. He fell on the ground. He was so terrified. But he said, not my will, because he loves us. So if ever there's times, and yeah, and sorry, Romans 5, verse 7, 8 
also says that very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. And I think that is the best love you can ever know. When we're at our worst, our most obstinate, our rudest, and we turn our back on him, nothing good about us, nothing attractive about us. He gave himself and he went through pain for us. So if any of those clouds that have obscured your view that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, that have got in the way of your view of God and his amazing love for you and his greatness, what really helps most of all is to look at Christ and to see what he has done, to fix your eyes on Jesus. And that helps to just blow the wave, the, the clouds of doubt away that he loves us so amazingly. And when we see his unquestionable love demonstrated so powerfully and sacrificially while we were sinners, if we build our lives on this foundation, he gave it all for us. How can we not hope and trust in a God that would give everything for us when we're at our worst and not fail us? Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 33, verse 16 to 22. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Please hope in God. And that is the end.